A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, are you ready for your First Rounders podcast? Because that's what this is. I'm the host, Brady Huggett, and this is um, yeah, it's my interview-based podcast. The guest today is Anu Acharya. She's a well-known Indian entrepreneur. She, um, I've known her for many years, uh, just through industry events, and it was fun to have her come in, sit in the chair, and, and do an official interview with her. Um, we talked about where she grew up and the influence of her parents on her and how these two things combined to shape the way she viewed the world and the possibilities for her within it. Um, we also talked about her education, both in India and the U.S. We talked about the many life science firms that she has worked at, founded, run. And uh, we also talked about her father, who uh, passed away about two years ago, and um, what that meant to her. He was, he was a big influence on her life, and, and uh, we talked about that. So Yep, that's it. I also will say I recorded this on Halloween. Maybe you stole some candy left over. Sit back, have a have a Snickers or a Twix or something. And uh, here's your first rounders podcast with a new Acharya. That's probably good. How's your chair? Is the height good? Chair is good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a comfortable chair. Yeah. Okay. So let's. Um, where do we want to start with this? I, I we could start with the fact that your daughter might be a Columbia soon um because i think that that sort of mirrors your own growth was she born in india she was born in chicago oh she was born in chicago okay yeah. so that, that i don't have as much information as i thought i did let's start in the beginning i know you were born in uh, i'm probably going to pronounce this wrong bickener bickener yeah and um and then your family moved nearly so my my dad was already in in Karakpur, which is in bengal yeah and <clears throat> when you were born he was there he was already there ah, okay so my mom just went back home for three, four months. So I was just delivered there, but my parents were already living in Bengal. Oh, okay. Okay. And so why, why'd she do that? Just for the comfort of having a child at home? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and her family was there to help, etc. Okay. So of course, you don't remember any of that. So then your entire time growing up. I just grew up in Karapur till, yeah. till I was uh, 21. And then I came to the U.S. Okay. So let's talk about you growing up, okay. right? So I don't know a lot. I know that... Um, I know that your father was a pretty good, pretty big influence, I think, on you and got you leaning toward the sciences. So what were your interests when you were growing up? So I think at that point, the interests were primarily in physics because my dad was a physicist. So uh-huh. he would take me to his lab. He would get his books. And also, I think uh, two of my siblings were pretty interested in science. Right? So both of them who were all elder to me, they were both very interested in science. Right. So I think we sort of had this large library at home. Uh, of physics books. Not just physics. I mean, we had fiction, non-fiction, but uh, there were a lot of physics books. There were a lot of chemistry and mathematics also. 
But I guess because my dad was a physicist, um, my leanings were towards physics. I started reading a lot about Richard Feynman and... Um, the Nobel winner. Yes. Yeah. And he wrote a lot of books. Um, I don't know if you've read any of them. No, I haven't. I read very few physics books, although I do, I do like physics. physics books. So, so his, some of his books were like, uh, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. And he had these big, good series of books which were fascinating. Some of it were on the lectures that he delivered, uh-huh. but some of them were popular science, right? So uh-huh. I think those were kind of uh, the ones that got me interested early on. I also had a good physics teacher at home and in school. So I think all that added up, and I think that's what I wanted to do. Okay, so you, you were, you said, you or how many children, how many siblings did you have? So we were four growing up. Okay, so you're the middle? I'm in the middle. I'm okay. the third. You're the third. Okay, there's, so there's one below you. And, and the two above you, were they brothers, sisters? The, the oldest is a brother. The second one is my sister. Is, um, she also did physics. And then my younger, um, younger sister, who's, who did chemistry, but is more a professional painter than... Huh. Okay, so then it seems like your parents, um, you just t- tell me where I'm wrong, right? So I'm, I'm gathering that your parents were somehow, it sounds like your father especially was, was, um, I, I mean, just delivering science to you at home, bringing, bringing books to you, saying this is what the world is like, um, and, uh, and all of you seem to have picked up that interest. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So your brother's a scientist too? He's, he's uh, if you use Google Scholar, he was the founder of that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she's definitely a scientist. Okay, yeah. so all, and then the, the youngest one is kind of a painter, although she's a chemist. She's a chemist, so she does have, uh, she would have, fit, she would have be, she was in UCLA for her master's and also a PhD. But I'm saying she also has an interest in arts, and she actually is a brilliant painter. So huh. she likes to identify herself more as being a painter than. But she still, does she still practice chemistry in some way? She teaches she, or? She does. So she's done a few things for Map My Genome, for instance. Yeah. I think she's. She, she has the scientific background, but she also has the artistic vision, so she puts both of that together. And, and when you say you're reading Richard Feynman, I mean, what, what age are we talking about? Um, ten. Ten. Oh, that's young. <laughs> ten. So I started reading a lot of uh, fiction very early, and then I started reading a lot of nonfiction as well. So I think because, you know, at that point, we didn't have TV at home. Yeah. Um, and all my brothers and sisters, I mean, my brother and sister both read a lot. My dad read a lot. We had a large library. I think it sort of, you know, it sort of rubs off on you. Yeah. So the the fiction that you were reading at the time, um, this is like young adult fiction, or yes. were you reading? Okay. So I started with young adult, and then we moved on quickly. So I've read everything from, um, you know, from regular fiction books that kids would read, yeah. and then then reading things that maybe a little bit older people would read. But I think it's interesting because my daughter does the same. She does. She does now already. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I want to get to her too. But um, so, other interests. I mean, were you playing cricket? Were you? Um, um, uh, so I used to play a little bit of cricket, but I used to. I was more a, a table tennis player, a ping pong. Yeah. And uh, um, also participated a lot in athletics and sports and and other things. And I think once I went to uh, and also participated in cultural activities. Right? So I was pretty much involved in things happening around me. So what, what 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 cultural activities? I'm trying to get a sense of what your childhood was like. I feel like it was different from mine, but it doesn't sound like it was actually that different. It it, it it usually is not different. It's just that we were in a small little town in in India, which uh, which is which was a campus town. So you had a lot of people who grew around you. Were all people who wanted to either become an engineer. Uh, very few wanted to become doctors, 
but our school had uh, both cultural activities as well as a lot of sporting activities and so we would um, so in terms of uh, cultural activities there were you know dances dramas yeah. debating you know and i was usually the person that people went to when they did not have somebody ready to speak so the last minute person could always be me uh, on any topic any topic <laughs> so it's it started becoming a natural habit to say okay we don't have somebody to to tell the news of the day we'll just get anu right so we would have this morning things where yeah. uh, the school they would say news of the day and the thought or the quote for the day yeah um, so it was usually i was the backup right? so i was not like the you know the one who won all the debates but it was the one that if we didn't have someone from our house i was always there so, so wait wait so there was someone's job every morning to get on the mic and say to the school what here's the, the here's the thought here's what happened here's what happened last night or is happening today and here's your thought for the day mm-hmm. but if there wasn't any news or there no one had prepared no, it they would just prepare or they didn't show up they would say you would come yes. because you would do it off the cuff or yeah. you knew I mean you knew enough about the news to say it or you would just make things up. No, no, I didn't make things up. <laughs> but I would know enough, but I I was I mean I think it was more confidence about being able to uh, speak so, to speak. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was part of the part of my growing up. So whether it was a debate to look elocution I was or wasn't the one who made the most fancy speech. But I was But the you had the confidence could, to do it yeah, whenever yeah. in front. Oh, that's that's uh, that's actually interesting too. But so this sounds like um this you're saying this was a university town. Yes. Because your father was a yeah. professor there. That's yeah. why. Okay. So then all around you in this town are people who are attending the university or maybe working at the university. Correct. So it's a very um I don't know, culturally intelligent town it sounds like. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And do you think that played any role in, you know, how you shaped what how you viewed what your life was going to be? Absolutely. I think because you start to uh, I think the people who are around you, all your peers, they all have this they ha- they all have aspirations to become scientist or engineer right so it's not unusual for you to think about that right um compared to if i grew up in the place that i was actually born in uh, that wasn't the normal thing to do right so then the normal thing would be that if you're a girl then you just you you you'd, be, you'd get some sort of an education but uh, your main in, aim in life was to get married and have babies yeah so i think that definitely plays a big role uh, because everybody around you does the same thing and we all read books we all and i was especially lucky because our class or our in my school we all were a lot of the girls were very very influential so we would be the ones uh, being in the top you know top few in the class and i think that has a role in also shaping up in terms of your your confidence and who you are yeah i mean it says something about um you know number one your parents were a big influence it sounds like your mother too as well yes, yeah absolutely um and what ways did she influence you So I think she was uh, you know one thing was that you know she was she's always very calm um calm. she never never got annoyed by you know all four of us she would personalize everything for each one of us we all liked different things she was very calm she always encouraged us to do what we wanted to do she was not like the uh, not constantly watching us on a, a day-to-day basis yeah. so she wasn't the one who would say did you do your homework you know she always she gave us the independence and i think that was for me was a huge thing because lots of the other moms were not not allowing their kids to have that independence um maybe it was a it was a combination of her being too busy with all of us yeah. but it was also i think that's that's her nature so to sort of just let you she let to, us to do give things. you the yeah. independence she gave us she gave us space um she let us uh, you know she let us do what we wanted to do 
and never ever told us that you can't do something right and i think you know that was part of the that's part of our upbringing we never felt that you know no problem was large enough or nothing that we couldn't solve you know so if there was a big problem we could you can always think about ways to solve it and i think both my parents they had a, they have they had a great relationship and that also you know makes a difference because they never argued they never fought and it they always like this nice influence on on all four of us it's a very calm peaceful yes. house yes. yeah uh, so talking about your town again do you think if you'd grown up in some other town right some town where maybe the main industry was i don't know um mining or mm-hmm. I, it would have you would have thought about the world differently? You would have thought, oh, well, this is what people do. They have these kinds of jobs. They live in these kinds of homes. I think you do. I mean, in some form you do, but in some form you don't because um, a lot of your influence comes from your closest friends and your family. Um, and as long as your your parents are like that and your friends are like that, I think you'll be fine. But I think if your friends are, uh, they are, they are key in terms of your closest friends, they are the key to actually influencing a lot of the decisions that you take. Uh, so yes, if if, you know, if my friends were different, uh, it's likely to have changed the way I I looked at the world. But uh, as long as I kept reading, I think that that's the key thing, right? If you read the right books, I think you can form an independent opinion anyway. You finished high school and then you went to the Indian Institute of Technology, yeah. Okay. And it, you already th- were thinking physics was your main interest there. Absolutely. And so at that point, what did you think your your career might be, your life might be? So I think at that point, you know, when I was very young and, and my dad used to tape, uh, he, would, he would record our interviews every year. Who? The two <laughs> of you? My dad, yeah. He would sit you down and have an interview with you? Every every summer. And say, how's it going? What's yeah. your life like? What's your life like? What are your plans? What do you want to do? And uh, he did this with all of us, right? So all four of us would do this every summer vacation. We'd have these little tapes and I don't know where they are, but it would oh, be interesting to, uh, to get those. Um, Do you think they're still around? <clears throat> I'm sure they're, they're somewhere because my dad never threw things. But, you know, when he passed away two years ago, we, we, did, we disposed a lot of stuff. So hopefully they're still there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But You've never listened to them since then? No, no, we did listen to some of them. But it was interesting because I always said I want to be a physicist, I want to be a physicist. My younger sister kept changing her mind on what she wanted to be. My brother was very clear of what he wanted to be. So I think my older sister wanted to be a doctor. So we were just trying to see what happened thereafter. Right? Yeah. And uh, for me, it was uh, till I went to, to IIT, till I decided, till I got into what I wanted to, uh, I didn't change my view. Right. But once I got into IIT, I said, you know, this is probably not the right, right path for me. And, um, and how, how did you know that? So I think it's part of your discovering yourself, right? You discover that you are much more a uh, people's person. You're, you're, you're not, you know, I was, um, you know, so partly it's about saying, you know, what are you actually good at doing and what do you enjoy doing? And I think and then I started getting a sense of saying, maybe this is not the right path for me. And I was being too influenced by, you know, just the little world that I grew up in. So you need to start expanding your, you know, your, your horizon and start to start thinking about, start to think about it bigger. And I think that's when I started thinking about uh, saying, maybe entrepreneurship is the right thing for me. Um, clearly, at that point, there was nobody in my family who did anything in business. Yeah. Um, but you know, then I said I wanted to do an MBA. You know, and it was a strange thing because usually people, when they enter the first year of college, don't think about that. Uh, 
No, so you're in your first year at IIT, mm-hmm. and you're in the physics track or something, Correct. right? Yeah. And you went all the way through with that? Yes, I did. Yeah, okay. So you finished with an undergraduate degree in physics? Undergraduate and master's. And master's. Oh, yeah. both there. Okay. Yeah. Um, even though you sort of knew in the beginning that you probably didn't want to be a physicist, you, you wanted to be in, into business. No. So did you start thinking that maybe you could be, you apply your physics towards some business end? Correct. You did? Yeah. Okay. Is that why you ended up? No, go ahead. So I, I think it was more like, you know, it wasn't that I didn't like physics anymore, but yeah. it was more about saying, you know, will I be a, the scientist like I thought I would be, right? And what other you, ways can I use science? Correct, correct. Right, okay. So either you become a scientist who would win a Nobel Prize, right? So you, you do really some break, you know, some huge breakthrough that will, will get you a, a Nobel Prize or you get to that level, right? As a child, I think you should dream about the biggest thing possible. Right? Yeah. So that's what I used to dream of. But I think once I came into IIT, you start, one is that you start, your world starts expanding, right? You start seeing more things, you see more possibilities. The second is to start saying, you know, is it just, uh, you know, will I just be right doing physics as a career versus should I use the knowledge that I have here into something else? So, so I think that those sort of put together, and I put those two, three things together and started saying maybe doing something in science would be a good thing, but not necessarily as a scientist. Right. So this gets us to Chicago, right? Yes, it does. Okay, so what happened? So you get out of undergrad with your master's too, and you're you're like, okay, um, now I want to apply this big base Mm -hmm. of science that I have in a new direction. How did you land on the University of Illinois? So at that point, I guess, uh, you know, I I wouldn't be able to apply to an MBA program directly because it would be too expensive. So I applied to a physics program. Um, I'd applied to actually a PhD program. You did? I did. Um, but uh, I knew I wasn't going to do it. Right? So it was a little unfair for me to do that to the university. But, you know, I, I went there, finished a master's, and then I moved to the business school after one year. Oh, okay. So you, because you, I thought I, I think I saw that you did have a master's from Correct. University of Illinois. I okay. got two master's from there. So I did one in physics, and then I did a second one in information systems. Okay. All right. So then how long were you there? Four years? Two years. Two years. You, yeah. you sort of compounded them. Yes. And were you, um, also, where were you in your life? Were you married yet? Uh, no, I got married right after that. But right I did that. meet my husband in, in college, in my second year of college. College, not, yes. not okay. So, so in, in, in Karakpur. Yeah, so you knew him and you said, uh, were you dating? Yeah. And you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to so go he, away. So one of the reasons I, I went to University of Illinois was he was in Champaign, Urbana. University of Illinois. Oh, he was? He was. So you, you met him in undergrad, and then he went there, and you... Yes. Oh, you both came to the U.S. together, sort of. He came a year before me. Okay. So, so you knew he was here, and you guys were in touch all that time. Absolutely. Huh. We had... Uh, I mean, I think our his phone bills were indicative of... <laughs> at that point, I think he would spend almost $1,000 a month, so... Are you kidding me? On phone bills? On phone bills. Isn't that we crazy? Didn't have, we didn't have Skype or... Right. And now you look at it now and you're yeah. like, man, that whole technology has gone away. That whole exactly. business has gone away. Yeah. Okay. So when you when you met him in college, how did you meet? Was he in your, in your lab or something? No, we were both in the same class. So we were... Uh, so, so in IIT, you had... Uh, for the first year is common for everybody, right? So everybody was... Yeah. The second year, you start going into your own yeah. physics stream. So he was also in physics. So we were both classmates. And that's how we came to meet each other. And you, you started dating and it seemed serious. Uh, around third year. Third year, it seemed yeah. serious, yeah. Okay. So you went into college, kind of thought you knew what you were going to do, but mm-hmm. once you got in there, you're like, well, maybe not. You met a man who became your husband. 
and then you guys went to Chicago together. Okay, okay. so you're both Chicago. You're studying. You come out with your MBA. He's still in Chicago. Yeah. So he finished his uh, MBA in Champaign and yeah. then moved to Chicago. While you finished your schooling. Correct. Okay. All right. So you get out. All right. And now you've got this. Um, you've got three masters. Yes. Do you have an undergrad and three masters, and still no real business sense yet? Correct. What was next? So I think next was I joined the startup. Which and, one? And uh, this was a startup called Mantis Information. Um, it was at that time when uh, the telecom, um, you know, there was a huge change in the telecom uh, laws. What right? year so are we talking about here? 96, 97. And um, the, the local exchange carriers were allowed, so you could now, you know, it was no longer that if you're in Chicago, you had Ameritech as your local exchange carrier, but you could now have anybody come in. So we had this software that would allow you to sort of, you know, allow, let's say, an AT&T or somebody else to become your local exchange carrier. Hmm. Um, so we, I was working on that, uh, with that startup. And it was a very small startup. And I think that was one of my best learning experiences. You know, it was a great learning experience because uh, I think I was like employee number eight or nine or, you know, one of the earliest. And in, in about a year, they grew to 150, 200. But I was more involved in consulting with Cincinnati Bill. So I, I did a lot of work with, uh, so I used to travel five days a week to Cincinnati and, and come back. By car? No. No, no that's way too far. Just yeah, too you, far. Oh, you flew. I okay. Flew. So five days a week you'd be on the road, Good. on the road, yeah. flying down, fly down Saturday, come back on, I don't know. I went Monday mornings, came back. Friday night. Friday, Friday yeah. night or Thursday night. I don't know. It's exhausting. I guess it, it not so much. No? <laughs> it was Okay. It's just a constant. I mean, so you're in a hotel down there in Cincinnati. Yeah. yeah. When you're young, I guess that's that's probably seems okay, right? Yeah. It, it didn't seem to bother me at that. It was point. fun. Yeah. Okay. So that's so if you start learning some business acumen here, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not your company. It's, it's not it's my a different company. Startup. So what happened to that company? Um, well, they got acquired twice. They are now part of Dynergy. Dial Energy. Dial Energy. Dial and D Y N E G Y Dynergy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they got acquired twice, so, and but I left before that happened. To do what did you what did you want to so, do? So um, so I knew that I was you know I I got, now had some startup experience, but I wanted to work for a large consulting firm. So I joined this company called SEI, um, which was also a Chicago-based uh, twenty-five-year-old consulting firm, and uh, they did a lot of work with uh, McDonald's and large pharma and all of that. So I said you know this would be good for me to first understand how. What happens? So you know how a startup functions, but you also want to know how a bigger company right. functions. Yeah. So that you know that what you need to get to. So I joined them. Uh, it was interesting because uh, the customer we had was also a, an entrepreneur. And so we ended up consulting a one-person company. Um, so that was interesting. So the, the, one of the clients was this one-person startup? one person who raised a round of funding. And uh, he basically gave us all the money to build his his website. Okay, so that's what that's the kind of consulting you were doing, Correct. sort of like how do we present this company? What do we make this no, company? No, it was we actually did all the work. So we actually built the whole backend engine, and so it was it was uh, like a social networking website for uh, this is much before Facebook, right? Uh, for entrepreneurs. Oh. So it was saying that uh, you know entrepreneurs are very lonely. So you wanted to build this community. <laughs> like he was, know. yeah. He was one person in a company. He was very lonely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but he, I guess that was part of his. Uh, you know what he wanted to build. It was called entrepower.com. So we launched the website. It was. I think we had a great team of people working on it. And it, you know, I don't know what happened to that software, but it was a great piece of uh, 
you know, matching between entrepreneurs and, and various other yeah. things. So I wish it has, uh, I mean, it, I wish it was ultimately used in something bigger, but I don't know that because yeah. I was there only for a year. Yeah, okay. So you consulted on that project. Okay. And any others? That's it. No. So then you left there. Okay. You thought, t- tell me why. Why'd you leave? You no, thought. so we had already, so, uh, so while all of this was going on, we were already planning different, uh, we already had different ideas. Right? Who, who's we? So my husband, me, um, and then the ideas came with, you know, either it was just both of us or it could be with multiple friends. Um, so from 96 to 2000, we had about, I don't know, about 30 ideas. <laughs> some of them went to some stage, others did not. Um, I think the one, there was one called Right Turn Systems that went to some, you know, went a little further than, than the others. There was another one that we um, thought about, which was called Bandwidth Bazaar. So we wanted to trade bandwidth. Bandwidth Bazaar, yeah. okay. And then we had another idea called Voicegram, which would combine data, voice, text, everything together. Let's see. <laughs> That's, I mean, these are, they actually do solve a user Problems. problem, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we thought about a lot of ideas, but, you know, in the end we said, you know, we should pick an idea that, you know, that will keep us uh, you know, intellectually engaged. And I think that's when um, one of our other co-founders came in and uh, she had this uh, idea to do something in bioinformatics. And she had brought this up earlier as well. And we said, you know, it sounds interesting, but, you know, nobody, there, you know, if you searched, and at that point there was no Google. Right. right? There was InfoSeq. And when we did a search, there were like three entries, right? So, you know, you could see three when you did a bioinformatics search. But uh, we said, you know, maybe this is not such a bad thing. So when she brought it up again in 99, um, and, you know, to build something from, uh, for a sequencing platform, we said, okay, this sounds interesting. But so you had, I mean, you had no life science experience or background, or your husband, right? No. So... Um, she did. She did. Yes. So when she presented this idea, were you, were you both sort of like, ah, I mean... It seems like a good idea, but that's not what we really know. The first time, yes, that was that was the so when she brought it up in ninety seven, ninety eight, we said good idea, but no. Wait, wait, so good idea, but not for us. Yeah. Or okay, and she didn't go look for someone else. No, to, okay. No. And then she came back. I think in ninety nine, I think at that point, I think the human genome was about to be very close. Yeah. Yeah. So I think then the excitement was slightly different, right? So I think that sort of got us uh, interested in you know in the science uh, much more than it, it did in 96, 97. Did you feel like you needed to then, um, you know, sort of bone up on life sciences? Absolutely. So how did, how did you do that? Um, so we we, uh, try, we started reading a lot. Both of us started reading us. And both of us loved reading, so it, yeah. I think that helps. Uh, but we moved back to India end of 2000. Um, and the idea was that uh, Sujata would set up the lab here in, in Indianapolis. And we would... Uh, we would have this offshore um, software, you know, the bioinformatics piece of it in India. So that was the original plan. All right. So let, let me try to visualize this company. The lab would be... Um, in the U.S. And doing what? Gathering samples? No. So at that point, uh, the company was supposed to do more on plant genomics, right? And which is why the name Osimum, yeah. because Osimum means, uh, is the botanical name for uh, the holy basil. I didn't know that. All right. Yeah. So we said we would sequence a lot of these medicinal plants, and uh, she could do the sequencing, and we could do the software, um, you know, putting the things together. So, so, I think so you're the, um, the Hyderabad office is going to be sort of like the storage space for all of this. So we said, we, you know, Hyderabad office would develop the software for, yes. for, for you know, 
for these little uh, so if if you did a lot of the sequencing uh, uh, the little sequences how do we cluster them put them together yeah. so to create a sequence analysis software and and then we said you know while we were thinking about all of this we said you know there isn't a software that allows you to start thinking like a biologist from a data perspective and that's how the limb system was born my question is why did the software part need to be back in india is it just because you wanted to move back to you and your husband or yes. yeah okay yeah. so we did want to move back to india um, we had had a baby um, some early 2000 and your first uh, my first yeah and uh, so we said you know if you wanted to move back we would move back right then rather than um, rather than later because we were already in a comfortable position we had finally come to a point where we paid our debt we, we were both making enough money but we said you know this would be a life that would be too smooth and too too easy uh, and we didn't want to do that you don't hear that very often life is too easy <laughs> let's make it harder yeah so you want but also did you want to raise your child in india yeah i mean the way you grew up yes and no i mean i don't think that was necessarily the reason but i said if we wanted to do something here um you would need support right you would need a lot of uh, whereas in india you would have fa- uh, family that would yeah. that would be there so if i wanted to do something especially uh, if both of us were involved in a in a venture uh, you're not going to have time right? yeah um so it would be easier to have uh, you know to stay so we stay with our in-laws and grand so we have, we stay in a joint family so it's easier for me to to go anywhere and and do anything that i want and sort of juggle the yes. the professional life and and yeah. being a yeah so that was the reason it was not so much about saying you know do i need to be specifically in india or here if my parents were here or your yeah. parents were here it's for family you do for yeah. family okay yeah. So you move back you have one child you move back you start Osimum right which uh here's what I know I mean eventually you bought GeneLogic right Correct. which is part um I don't I don't know what year that was though 2007 Oh so that company really flourished for a while Yes So what how, take me through how this company um how it progressed So so in 2000 end of 2000 was when we started the company 2001 we began operations in India um So well, I said you know earlier we thought we would have the lab in Indianapolis and then yeah. the bioinformatics in India. Uh unfortunately uh, Sujatha didn't wasn't able to get over her wasn't ready to leave her job right then. Right? So we became the the headquarters of the company. So we started working on the limbs product and the sequence analysis product. But we couldn't find enough people. Right. So you couldn't find people in India that were well trained. So we got a few people from her lab to move to move, move back um and we got some more people who who had moved back from the US. Uh and that's how we built the original first few people. But uh, we needed to make this bigger, right? So we had to think about ways of getting this done and and there weren't enough universities in India doing offering bioinformatics courses. So we tied up with the university in uh, Michigan. and created this online course where we would have the faculty teach uh, the kids in in India and that's how we built our core team all just a straight bioinformatics course online online and occasionally i think they used to come there they would come to michigan or vice versa they would come to india oh great so, yeah, yeah yeah so these these were um this is university of michigan um so it was it eastern michigan tech and then uh, the chair of the department i mean the person who was our main contact over there he moved to um, university of alabama uh-huh. and 
and he then was uh, the the key person for us over there. So the the you know, we changed our certificate program from Michigan Tech to Alabama. I see. Okay, but the, so he was he was still teaching it, but just from Alabama. Correct. correct. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so this allowed you to sort of um, what you couldn't hire, you could then train almost. Correct. And so, I mean, how many people did that company grow to? Um, so eventually, Osiwa grew to about three hundred people. That's big. Yeah. And then, but so the gene logics part. That happened much later. Yeah, right? okay. so, so we started working on the bioinformatics products. And I think by second year, we realized we needed to be independent and and have our own revenues and, and start thinking about that. So by second, third year, I think we started selling um, in the U.S. We started selling in Canada. And, uh, you know, the product actually, you know, you know the LIMS product, I think we first sold... First couple of them were in, in India, but after that we sold one in. We sold a lot of them in Canada. Okay, now, now tell me what the product is. Um, so that's a lab information product. Uh-huh. Um, so it allows you to um, keep track of your people, processes, uh, reagents, and everything else. Right? So it was a limbs product that we created from scratch. Yeah. And because uh, you needed it. Because we needed it, but we realized we also needed revenue. So. So yeah, it started became, selling it. Yeah. yeah, we started selling it, and it was actually quite a well-received product. It still continues to be one of our key products in Osimum. Um, it's it's uh, from an architecture point of view, it has undergone three avatars, but uh, I think it's it's still essentially uh, the heart of it is still 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 the same. I mean, it, so did that become the main revenue source then? Uh, for a while, it was, and um, so we also had other bioinformatics products. We eventually created about ten bioinformatics products. Um, but somewhere in 2005, we had an offer to um, to do something big for this company called MWG Biotech. Um, That's the company? Yeah, so that was a company in Germany. Uh-huh. And um, they would have been one of our largest customers. But eventually, I think things went wrong with that company. And we ended up buying a portion of that company. So that sort of changed, you know, everything that we did because... We were initially in India, you know, we primarily did most of it was software, uh, so bioinformatics, lab information systems, and we mostly sold to outside of India, but, you know, all the work was done in India. Uh-huh. Suddenly, we now had an offer to buy a company. I said, yeah, sure, without knowing the implications of, <laughs> you know, what this is going to do to us. Uh, but it was great because we eventually did buy that company. It was our first acquisition. And I think one of our best, um, eventually, you know, when we looked at all of that. So it was the first acquisition that we did. It gave us access to a lot of uh, international customers. Uh, it gave us technology that would have been difficult to then create in India. So we were manufacturing microarrays in India from 2006 onwards. Um, so once we started doing that, we then got into this more. By the time, we hadn't raised any capital, right? So it was mostly... Uh, yeah, at all. No, so That's it was five, amazing. six years. Yeah. And, and, and because of this lab product, lab product and bioinformatics. So we were so, selling a lot of. We were selling these, and we were sustaining ourselves. Uh, we did put in some of our own money, but it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't like we, you know, in millions of dollars or yeah, anything. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was well self-sustained. Um, I think even when we did the first acquisition, we did it without external capital. So it was uh, quite an interesting. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But by the time VCs were coming to our doorstep saying, why don't you take money from us? And uh, finally, in 2006, we did. Okay, so what, what VCs were coming to your door? I mean, why? why? Because were these Indian biotechs, were these life science VCs, were these... Well, they um, were a combination of them, right? Because they, they, they suddenly saw this company survive for that many years, having a lot of international customers, uh, having a steady growth rate and so on. So I think we did see a lot of, uh, we did see a lot of interest, but we hadn't thought about raising capital till then. But you didn't need to. We, we didn't need to, yeah. unless we thought about bigger things. So uh, eventually, I think we did take in the first check from IFC. Um, and that was, uh, it, was also an, it was also an interesting way of actually raising capital because uh, they had asked someone to do a survey of all the companies in, in India. And uh, I was in touch with them. Not with IFC, but with the, with the Stanford Research Institute or SRI that was actually doing that survey for them. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. And then in 2006, I think ultimately that's how we got the first uh, round of funding because I said, maybe now we are ready. And, and we wanted to acquire a company. And so were you the CEO? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and you'd, you'd always been the CEO because you sort of formed it. Yeah. And, and your husband was working there too. He was. Yeah. As, as, a, as a scientist. So, so it was interesting because first he didn't want a title. Right. But uh, he, he just wanted to walk around just, the halls with no title. Yeah, yeah. he just wanted to be the notable <laughs> title person. Uh, but I think what happened was that uh, there were some people who would not talk to him because they say, "I already talked to the CEO." Right? Uh, so you could be the founder, but you know, I think eventually uh, he kept the title of president. And uh, even now, I think he still doesn't like to be called. Uh, even though now I've been out of the company for what three and a half, four years. Yeah. Um, he still doesn't call himself the CEO, even though. Though he is, yeah. so he's still there. He's still there. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, so you get this round of funding, and and now, this is Gene Logic. No, this is uh, the se- this is the second one. So um, the second one was uh, meant for another company, which eventually didn't happen. So um, so we had raised this round of funding. This was a very good company. It actually still exists, so I don't want to name it, uh, but it was a company that was. Uh, um, you know, also based in Germany, very close to the other one. Yeah. And we said, you know, they were making these oligonucleotides and we really liked the company. So we said, you know, we were ready to do this deal. We actually announced it internally because it was all done. Oh, man. And uh, the funding had come through. And then they called and they said, the founder doesn't want to sell. Right? So we had to sort of take a deep breath. We were in the middle of a party. 
Uh, just announced. I mean, honestly, in the middle of a party and a phone call comes yes, in. Yes, yes. Oh, so we had just announced it like an hour ago to all the employees saying, you know, we are acquiring this company and. We're going to grow. Yeah, it's we're going to grow. Great by future it, for yeah. all of us, yeah. And, yeah. and then right after that, you know, in the middle of that, we get a call saying <laughs> he doesn't want to sell. Right? Did so you tell him? Right did, then? Yes. Right we then? didn't tell them right then. Uh, we told them the next day. Oh, man. Uh, but eventually we did acquire another company called Isogen. Yeah. Um, which was based in the Netherlands. So we started then searching frantically for companies in that space. So we acquired this company called Isogen Life Sciences, uh, which was also an interesting uh, company, um, very different culturally from the German company. I would assume so, yeah. yeah. And um, I think it was good because uh, the tuberculosis product that we have today actually started from there. So so it was a, it was a good, you know... Um, but, you know, each one of these, had you bought the other German company, well, okay, because you have a tax base set there, that makes sense. Now you've gone to a different country and you had established, I mean, that must have been incredibly difficult to... Yeah, I think those those were things that we learned on the job there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was, um, I think, because initially we said, you know, we would acquire another German company, it was vertically integrated, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. And now we had a company that was in the Netherlands. So what we did was we consolidated. So we moved the German company to to Netherlands. We the this company MWG had three branches. They had one in the U.S., one in India, and one in Germany. One in Germany. So we moved the German one to Netherlands. We moved the Indian one to that was already done in 2000, early 2006, and the U.S. one to the U.S. Uh, by the time the U.S. Uh, company had also started. So when you say you move them, mm-hmm. physically move the assets, but with the human capital too. Uh, yes. Some some were willing to make some the move. Or some some probably were not for yeah. family reasons or whatever. So that must have been uh, honestly that has to be a hard decision. It is, but I think it was. Uh, so when we did the first acquisition, it was an asset buy. So it wasn't so much. It was more like you know we told them that this would be the ultimate. Yeah. You know that there might be some changes. So some yeah. people moved. Uh, in fact, we had some people from Germany who came to India for a few few months to train train the staff and so on. You know, I think we did, we had to do what we had to do. Sure, of course, yeah. No, I just wondered, that, that, that's what business is, right? But I just wondered uh, personally if you were like, ah, all right, this is hard. Uh, we have to let people go. We have to tell people that we're taking some of the things out of the company, but probably not them, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I think when we did the acquisition, we didn't take that many people, right? So the ones who were there, I think, continued to stay with us for a little bit. Um, and the harder thing, you know, the letting go was what happened more in gene logic than it than it happened in other places. So I think this was, it was not, not too bad. Because okay. uh, there weren't too many people. And the people who did not move, did not move because they didn't want to move. Right. right. They, they so, had the possibility yeah, to yeah. do it, right? Yeah. Right. So take, take me through GeneLogic. Yeah. So we did these two. And then the third one, um, so GeneLogic was a company I always knew. And it was a company that I, you know, admired in, in many different ways. So I was in the U.S. for some other purpose. We get a call saying, you know, why don't you go take a flight to TC, GeneLogic's for sale. So I said, huh. ah, really. Um, but who, who was the phone call from? GeneLogic? No, no, it came from my co-founder. But oh, okay. But the had approached him. Okay. So I said, okay, fine. You know, I, had, I was in North Carolina. I took a flight, came, came to DC, met them, and uh, liked the company. And within a few months, we acquired it. <laughs> so it was an interesting, uh, very interesting um, company because very different from the other two. So I think MWG was very, you know, um, we didn't have too many people, but, you know, in terms of a cultural fit, it was very easy to 
integrate that with our. Uh-huh. Uh, the MWG, it was sort of always different. It was, you know, an oligonucleotide production. Uh, we did have this, you know, team doing that in, in India, but we ultimately decided not to do it because of uh, cost purposes. It, it didn't make sense from a raw material point of view. Uh, with GeneLogic, it was a completely different company. It was a company that spent a lot of money. It had huge burn. Uh, so they were already pretty R&D heavy. Very R&D heavy. Very, um, I think everything they spent more than they needed to. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, I guess at that point, uh, they'd raised a lot of capital. Um, so the culturally, it was a very different company. So it, we, I spent about three months sitting in the U.S. trying to understand and say what you know what we needed to keep before the acquisition actually happened. So, so we did that. Um, we had about fifty-five people in in GeneLogic, um, and it was a. I think it was good for some time. Uh, for a couple of years, we did very well. We uh, the revenues for the BioExpress and others went up. Uh, the revenues for the services also went up. So everything was looking good, but it was a lot of stress for me because I was. Um, I was constantly going back and forth yeah. about six times a, a year, more than six times a year. So it spent three weeks in the U.S. and then. So that's, you know, you know, every other month you're gone for most of the month, it sounds like. I, I was gone. Yeah. And, and most of the time going around to meet customers, you know, trying to increase sales and, and do other things. And so you, you uh, I don't know how many children you have. Did you have another one? I had them? two by then. Two by then. So they're young, still at home, yeah. and you're on the road. I was know, on the road consistently. most of the time. Yeah, yeah. okay. So it went on for a few years. I think uh, we had reached, uh, so then uh, we had raised a second round of funding when the GeneLogic acquisition happened. And it was a, uh, it was a private equity fund that did that. And it was, so I think for the first two, three years, it was good. You know, we went on this exponential growth path. And uh, then, you know, it came to a point where we said, do you really want to do this for the rest of your life? <laughs> you know trying to go six, six, seven times a year, uh, or you need to get someone to run this right, place. So right. we got someone to run the place. It didn't work out for us at all. Um, so in nine months, we... Why, why not? Well, I guess culturally, very bad choice from our side. You mean to, the, the choice to run the company was not the right choice? The choice of the person to run the company that we got on board yeah. was not the right, right choice. Right, right. So and, then, and then also, so he was more built for a large company, uh, you know, that sort of. A, uh, whereas here we're trying to build a services company. Right? Services companies have very different uh, DNA, to speak. So I think that was uh, that was a big problem over there. Um, and now you're and now you're not going back and forth, so it's hard to sort of keep tabs on what's happening. Uh, yeah, so I, I sort of also, I said, you know, let's at least give the, this guy some independence to run the place as, yeah. you know, so he doesn't feel that I'm constantly watching over him. Sounds like your mother, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that sort of was both good and bad. Uh, but ultimately, I think uh, things didn't work out. We had to, you know, shut down. Uh, we sold a portion of the company to, to Transgenomics. We then, uh, you know, said we'll move everything back to India. Uh, so all of that happened. I think it was... Uh, it was a tough choice, but you know, you you make those tough choices yeah. at that point, so that it doesn't get worse for the rest of the company. Right. So that's where you're saying Correct. layoffs came in. It was a hard one. It yeah. was hard because actually we had uh, we had an offer for someone else to buy the company, and they didn't have the money, so they didn't buy it. So then you had to split it and sell yeah. a portion yeah. and. Yeah. So yeah. it was pretty bad. Uh, it was it was all you know everything that can go wrong went wrong. <laughs> 
but ultimately i think uh, you know because these people were not i was fine by saying you know let's close it down at least let these people have jobs yeah so we found a, we found someone who said they would buy it. so they had a binding agreement but they didn't have the capital so so finally we had to let go of people because we didn't have a choice and i think that's where i felt that that was the time where you feel bad that yeah. letting letting go of people but you know, there was no nothing else you could do at that point yeah, I mean, this is every CEO I've ever yeah. talked to feels this way, right? I mean, it's part of business. You have to do the right thing for the business. But, um, you know, there are people involved and they don't have jobs. And that's yeah. the worst thing is to not have a job. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, you know, in this case, people did get fine jobs, but not everybody at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's a, that's the hardest thing that you have to do to, when, when you're making those kind of decisions. But you have to do it for making sure that eventually it didn't have too much effect on the rest of the company. So, so how did you, I've never really figured this out, how did you get out of Osimum? I didn't, so, so we... Uh, I, for some reason I thought, I thought that it had, I, I, just because I wasn't paying attention I think, I thought that maybe it had ended and you'd moved on to start Map My Genome. No, so, so we, I went back, I mean after, after we closed down the, the U.S. office, um, went back to, in, I mean in India we, we sort of got things back on track a little bit. But I constantly felt that there was, I mean, I had brought this up even before uh, before we had closed down the GeneLogic operation. Um, in 2011, we brought it up to the, with the board saying, we wanted to build something on the consumer front. Yeah. So the board wasn't very keen because they said it's a, and I think they, rightly so because it's a completely different market. Right? You're addressing consumers, you're addressing healthcare yeah. companies versus uh, R&D heads of Pfizer and uh, Novartis and others, right? So it was a different, um, completely different set of people. Customers, like yeah, customers, customer yeah. base, right. So they said it didn't make sense, but that we should continue to support, you know, if, if you know, if you wanted, if someone was building something like that, we could be the back end. But I felt somewhere that, you know, that was something I felt strongly about. And so uh, technically Subhash, actually my co-founder and husband, he was the one who had come out of Osimum because I, I was still this, I was a CEO. He had come out and actually started the early work on on Map My Genome. Huh. And um, and somewhere in 2012, I met one of my current board members, and I said, you know, I'm I, I'm in this dilemma. I want to, you know, that's Osimum's my baby that I've, you know, we've been nurturing it for the last 12 years, but you know, I really want to do this Map My Genome thing. Um, so he said, "You already told me what you want to do," and and I think uh, you know. It, I think during that discussion, I said maybe it's not such a bad idea to to actually move and let me see if the board is okay with that. And then I sent an email to the board, you know, saying, saying that saying like I, I'm bored. Yeah, so like, right. <laughs> so you're like the company's fine. Yeah. It's self-sustaining. It's growing. I'm bored. I want to do something else. Yeah. And they said, "Okay." Yeah, this they said you know so I and I told Subhash that he left he left so I, I think we that's your husband this, yeah yeah so he left already but he came back so he's running I was like he's he's running it now um, so he's running it now so the he's he went back to Osimov now okay all right uh, and I came into to become the CEO of Map My Genome so that's Map My Genome is something that was founded from the ground right correct, correct so then how did you how did you build it how did you build the company so I think there. Um, you know, so so by uh, so 2012, so we we made this decision. We were discussing, you know, what needed to be built, and all of that. So we did. We spent clearly one year, one and a half year, in trying to understand, getting the annot annotations, understanding what the human uh, for the Indian population data was there, 
and trying to write the algorithm and so on, right? So we did all of that. But the first thing that we did was uh, there was a contract to Wasimum to help us with the you know, what a limb system, what a bioinformatics piece together. So we put in all of that together. And because of our background and experience, it was easy to sort of build it up quickly. And so, so this is a brand new company. Did you start like a direct-to-consumer ad saying, we have information, if you would like to know what your genome looks like, what we can tell you, you know, and just started bringing in money that way? So, I mean, initially it started off by just telling our friends, you know, club people who were, you know, ready to agree to what we were, you know, ready to buy what we were selling. And and slowly we did, then we did a, a big launch event. Um, a lot of media covered it. And eventually I think people started to buy it. And so at this point, the cost had come down considerably, yeah? Yeah, so we, I mean, we started the product at $400. So there was a single product at that point. What was on that initial panel? So the panel? initial panel was about 45, 45 conditions. It's now 120. Okay, so. yeah. But, you know, it was 45 conditions and... You know, when you think about it now, it was, you know, today it's obviously in a much better shape than it than it was then. But it was still, a, a, you know, for for the Indian consumer, I think it was the first time you we were offering something like that. Yeah. So I think that uh, it did get a lot of people's attention. Um, we, we were the first company that was selling a large, you know, a consumer product. But we were also trying to uh, help consumers understand what this meant. And I think slowly it, it went, mostly has been a referral sort of marketing. So people have told their friends and family. I mean, when you get your genome sequence, we're still at the point where it isn't particularly actionable, right? I mean, you get this a set of data and you go, okay, well, I mean, yes, we know that I have brown hair, or mm-hmm. yes, it, 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 um, I have a tendency maybe to diabetes, although you're not diabetes, whatever. But there, you just it's sort of information that you can't really do anything with. You can do small things, like maybe you should eat differently or whatever. Well, I, I think for us, uh, because we're not just giving them that information, we are also doing the counseling piece where we're telling them that, you know, let's let's actually start understanding your family history. Yeah. Right? We're understanding your family history. We are trying to see if if there are screening tests that we can recommend to you and so on. So one of the, the uh, bigger challenges today is that I think in India, it is mostly a out-of-pocket expense, expenditure, right? So you when you go to a doctor, you're actually paying out of, you know, you go there, you have a problem, you solve. Yeah. You, know, you pay them and you get a get yeah. treatment. Yeah. But in most cases, you don't have the family doctor left anymore, right? So there is uh, n- nobody who understands your actual family history well enough. So the way I look at it is that, um, you know, if you are if you want to understand your family history, getting a genome test becomes a great starting point. So you get a genetic genetic test, and then you start asking questions. And with me also that happened, right? So when I got the first test, you know, yes, oh, yeah. di- diabetes was an obvious uh, answer, right? I mean, it was there. It was there. My father had it. My grandfather. Oh, had okay. It and so on. yeah. Uh, so you were looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. So you know that was definitely something that I was worried about. It was. Um, it was definitely something that was there. But there were a few other things that came up, and um, then I said, you know, then I asked in my family, and it was there, right? But it's just that sometimes we don't bother about those things because we know about the bigger events that happen in their lives. So especially if you take your grandparents or someone else, you know some of the big things that happen. So if someone had, let's say, cancer, then maybe people know if yeah. they had, you know, a, they, they they died with a heart attack or, or something else. We know Appendix that. burst, yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah. But yeah. we don't know a lot of the details that happen in their life. 
so i think but when we got the when i got my first report you start asking those questions and you get the answers and i think with that information now you have a much more powerful you know source of data points that can be used by consumers because you're putting these uh, you're putting your family history you're putting your current lifestyle and then you're putting this and then you're doing an assessment so i think with that i think there is uh, a lot of dietary and and lifestyle modifications you can do but i think the bigger thing is that you can now get a much more clear view of your your own history so that when you go to a doctor you can actually give them that sheet so yeah i feel like so tell me where i'm wrong but i feel like the doctors aren't quite ready for that yet right so the way we are now presenting it to them i think they like it <laughs> so we've gone through that whole cycle of um, you know 3 years of trying to understand what they were looking for but uh, when you we don't want to just present it as a pure uh, genetic report right but you want to present it as an overall uh, risk risk report and and i think when you draw the nice you know family tree you can draw the uh, things that are there you're giving consumers also what are the possible tests but you say go to your doctor and get uh, you know check with them yeah it's good for them also because patients are coming to them more regularly they're not coming to them in the in the last stage um and you know we we are sort of we're saying this is what is recommended but you know you are doctor knows best right so you are sort of in, involving the doctor also in that process and i think that has sort of helped them and we said instead of giving them the 100 page report that we have we'll give them this two page report that that they really like like highlights yeah the yeah. highlights right so the highlights of not just the genetic report but genetics plus family history and that i think is something that they they've sort of most doctors have like that i want to ask you too though uh we've talked a little bit about this before but what has it been like to be an entrepreneur okay in india and a woman right you said before that this is sort of groundbreaking you try to be a mentor to other people um you are a mentor you i think you work for um i think you mentor at ivy cap is that right yeah, yeah. that's yeah. one one of yeah okay so t- tell me about that yeah so I, i think you know being an entrepreneur is um, i guess now it's just become part of my life so you don't think about it too too deeply that way but i think when you meet a lot of uh, young girls and and others uh you realize that you made a difference in their lives because you know they've sort of you know they they look up to you in 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 a way that you never thought people would right yeah. um and i think that's a, that's encouraging because you want you don't want young girls to think that they can't do something so i think today i think it's very different from it what it was when i was growing up and uh, as the numbers increase i think it sort of changes the perception like i said when i was growing up you know people around me did not think that it was odd to be a scientist or an engineer right i think similarly if we had enough enough entrepreneurs in stem you know women who were doing this it wouldn't be considered strange or odd or being one of those few people who did that but it was it would just be a normal thing to do yeah and that's what i'm hoping that um, you know we can have build and and that's why it's important that we can mentor as many people who are interested in this area as much as we can So when when you do that and and when you do mentor them how mm-hmm. how do you do it do you teach a class do you um you meet one on one with people mostly one on one right um but i think some people just i, I mean i i mean sometimes i don't even know what i've told someone till they come back to me years five, later <laughs> years yeah. later and tell me that you know you told me this and i it's been helpful so I, I, you know sometimes you don't know where they get you know what you've you, what you've spoken sometimes it's they're listening to your talks right um and and that's why you feel that there is a sense of responsibility that you also carry because it's not just 
for yourself. You're doing it for the next few generations after you. Um, and I and I didn't realize this early early on. So when I was 28, 29, you didn't think about those. Uh, so, you know that it, it, your voice actually carries the message for many younger people. But now you do, right? So you you sort of make sure that at least what you're saying is not irresponsible in <laughs> in any form. <laughs> right. right. You have to think about it yes, before you yes. say that. But beyond just the things that you've done and, and um, people look up to you, they look up to you because you are sort of a, this beacon in India, right? I mean, you, you've started several companies. Um, you've won several awards for entrepreneurship. And so that sort of intensifies that people will be looking up to you. And um, I don't know. I mean, beyond the mentoring, do you are there other ways in which you try to make sure that you get that message out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a lot of times it is, uh, you know, people are watching things on, on YouTube. Um, you know, sometimes they do it live, but many times they've researched you thoroughly before. So you, you know, people know more about you than you remember about yourself. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a good thing because you know, it sort of, uh, it sort of means something to them at, at this point. Um, and and for me, that makes you know, it makes you feel good that you know you've been able to at least help some people think about uh, either a career in science. Uh, or they're thinking about uh, entrepreneurship, it's good. But I've also made sure that I've warned enough people that don't just become an entrepreneur because you think you'll become rich and famous. Right? Which is kind of a, th- it's kind of a, a thing now, right? I mean, certainly that in the, in the U.S. I think it's the same in India. There is a, a like a swelling of entrepreneurship. Um, so you caution them in that way, you're saying? It's I like it's, it's yeah. not just fun and games and no rock star life. It's... It's incredible hard yeah, work. Yeah, I, I said, you know, if you're, if you're watching me just giving lectures or, or you know, you think I'm doing, you know, if, if that's the life that you think an entrepreneur goes through, you shouldn't, right? Because in the end, I said, if there's a problem you want to solve, if there's a problem that you feel strongly about, only then do it. Because it's not going to be an easy journey. Even if you raise a lot of money, you'll still have a hard life. Right? Yeah. So it's not something that you should do only because you want to become rich. Uh, but I think if you strongly feel about something then I think you with that passion you're able to solve those you know those challenges that come through you know I think many people think that you are when you're an entrepreneur you're partying you're you know they see a part of you which is which is external but they don't see what happens on a day-to-day basis yeah so I think it's important to let them know also that because entrepreneurship today is sort of worshipped um, it's sort of become you know the thing to do so if you're in college you think about being an entrepreneur it wasn't the case when we were growing up, right? It wasn't uh, natural for yeah. most people to think about being an entrepreneur when I was 28, 29. Uh, for, I mean, although at that point, I think in the U.S., I think it had just around started. 96, 97 yeah. was when there were lots of I think in some form, maybe even I was influenced by that. But I think we also then thought about a problem that we really could solve and make a difference. And uh, that's what I like to caution people about saying, don't just think about it as, you know, somebody else who was 24 and, and became a billionaire is not. Uh, that's a, not a reason. Exactly. Yeah. It's not a reason for you to become an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you, and you have to like building companies, right? Yes, you have to exactly. like the concept and the product and, and you know, how, how you build it. And yeah. that has to be something that interests you. Uh, so have you seen a Have you seen a change as far as um, women in, in, uh, as entrepreneurs in India? Yeah. I think there are lo- now there are quite a few. Uh, there are quite a few women who are entrepreneurs. I just recently, I think even in biotech, I've been seeing quite a few people. Uh, I met someone who was building something, who's building a PCR machine in India. So I think you know, it was, it's nice to see those, uh, those sort of ideas yeah. uh, come up. And um, there, I mean, there are enough people who are 
thinking about ways in, in both in engineering in, in and in sciences, whether it's in biotech or even in uh, serious, um, you know, manufacturing. Uh, I think there are enough women who are doing that. There's one woman who makes uh, electric cars. Oh yeah. I, so I think there are now, you know, I I can name at least a hundred, two hundred women that, you know, I think are doing very interesting things. Yeah. When you grew up, how many? I could barely count them. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Uh, I also did want to ask you. Mentioned that your father passed away in 2014, right? So, um, as as you said, he was a mentor to you in a, in a major way. It sounds like he was a big influence on your life. Um, I know that, like on on, um, I think on the Osman blog or maybe the Matt My Genome blog, and you've you've written mm-hmm. some things about him, some essays, and maybe even a poem. So I want to ask you, like, when that person was that big of a an effect on your life, how do you deal with the with the grief of it? So I, I think you know when when he passed away, the first first day it was um, you know you you didn't you don't believe that you know that it could actually happen because I was supposed to be there the week after, and I did. Um, and but he, he knew you were coming, you're saying? Yeah, so I think that was a bad thing because I, I said I would come. And my mom said, you know, he's he's recovering, he's doing well. He was in the hospital, and my sister was with him. So uh, she actually saw him pass away, so it ah. was probably harder on her. But um, so I was going to come the week after. And I said, you know, I'll come there, then you know, once he recovers, I'll take him back to Hyderabad because he likes the doctors over there. Um, so we, and we thought about that. So when I got a call, you know, saying, have you started? I said, started for where? And then they said, you know, he's no longer there. So oh. I think that was a, a really rough, uh, I think it was just around around Halloween because my daughter was all dressed up. Um, so I had to immediately. It was two years ago. Two years ago. Oh, exactly that's not long. Yeah. yeah. So I took a flight and I went. And while I was sitting on the flight, you know, sitting on the front front row, I was crying and I was writing. So I didn't want it to be a, I knew it was a moment that, was not going to, you know, it was it was a very difficult moment. But I think I sat over there and instead of you know just crying, I said, let me write about him. Produce, right. yeah, yeah. So I wrote about him and um, I posted it on Facebook the day after. I mean the same day, right? And it was just because I think and when you write it at that moment, you get the right right words, right feelings. And so I just you know said I went there. I said you know my mom's the one who's going to be the one who's hardest hit. Uh, he's definitely a huge influence on not just me, but all of us. Your siblings, yeah. Um, but it's not, it was, the most interesting thing was, he was not just an influence on us, he was an influence on many more people. Because right? he was an, he's a teacher too. He's a teacher, yeah. right? And there, he was, uh, there were people that I know very well who never told me that my dad was an influence on their lives until he passed away. So it was like, I know, once I posted, I got about, you know, thousands of messages from, from people um, who either who either knew him from when he was a child or from people who he taught and so on. So I said, you know, it was kind of nice. I, I sort of used those 15 days of uh, when everybody comes and just cries to saying, you know, write something about my dad. Yeah. I, I want to know more about what he's done because he never used to boast about what he did. Right. He never told that, you know. He would never say, you know, I've really affected a lot of people no, through he my would teaching. Never say yeah. That, right? no, yeah. He would never say that I, he's done something. So I think for me it was more about saying, you know, uh, yes, it's a moment of grief, but he's gone. You, know, you can't bring him back. So why don't we, you know, use this to influence? You know, let's let's just understand who he was, and, and maybe that helps all of us in some way. So I would sit over there every day when people would come, and you know, they come for 15 days to mourn. Yeah. And I would take a book, 
and, and give it to everybody and say, write something. You mean uh, like, a, like a notebook, an empty I, book? I take an empty book. And, and say, say, write your thoughts of my father. Yeah. Yeah. So you have that. I, I do. That's nice. Your kids can look at that, you know? Yeah. That's a really nice thing. Are, are, you, are you saying that um, also that you were going to go see him the next week and he passed away? Like, does yeah. that, that must have been... Yeah, that stuff, I think, because... Uh, I would have felt so guilty, I think, somehow. I think that is that 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 definitely I think is the was was the worst part because you don't you don't I didn't think he would pass away so and just, I mean yeah. as you know right you cannot plan yeah. these things so you have to let that go but uh, okay so um, I think that's all I oh I, I actually want to talk about your daughter mm-hmm. now right so your daughter as you said is looking at schools in the U S correct yeah. and she's also a scientist she yeah so it, it's interesting because she's interested in the sciences and computer science and robotics she I mean she's a brilliant writer. And but it's interesting that she's been influenced by somewhat similar things in her life than than the, the those than you know like the ones that influenced me, for instance, uh, science fiction. Oh really? Yeah. So that's why she likes robotics. Yeah, and oh, she's she's read. Uh, so I mean, I, I think I've written about Isaac Asimov uh, growing up, and the Foundation series, and I was reading her essay, and it had the same things. So it was funny <laughs> because you know she just gave it to me to say you know can Here's you just have essay. a look? Yeah. 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 And I was reading through it, and I was like, "Wow, she's written it much better." But you know, it's, it's you know, there are many similar things that that influence all of us over over many generations. So I think that's. Um, so it's maybe you said maybe Columbia, MIT, Carnegie yeah. Mellon. Yeah, great robotics. She's, yeah, she's she she's uh, she wants to go to a good engineering school, I guess. So Columbia, she really liked Columbia when she was here. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, she was in Brown last year. Um, so I think she's a, she's applied to MIT to a few other these um, I think to Berkeley and a few others. So let's see where she gets in. Thanks a lot Thank for coming you. in. I appreciate sure. the talk. Thank you. And that's the end. So thanks Anu for coming into the office. Uh, if I were to work for a life science company, I'd like to work for her. Seems like she'd be a good boss. Uh, also, thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. Thanks to all the listeners for continuing to download this podcast or stream it. Um, I will put some information together on our blog, Trade Secrets. You can find that blog linked off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. I'll put information on a news company, some uh, inf- articles on her. I'll maybe find that essay that she wrote about her father as well. If you have concerns or questions about this podcast, the Nature Biotech Journal itself, or our blog, or anything else, you may tweet at us. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. And um, yeah, that's it. I will let the music bring us out and goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.